0: Welcome back to Between the Levees. I'm joined today by Captain Matt Lagarde, the Vice President of Safety, Training, and Compliance for Ingram Barge. Matt, thank you for joining me. It's good to be here, Tim. Well, we, of course, I believe, met at AEP back in the good old days. So uh, let's backtrack to where it all started for you. Where were you born, sir? I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana. grew up in New Orleans East. Did you really? I was not aware of that. Well, tell me about life growing up. Uh,
1: Life growing up, my dad was a police officer um, for the New Orleans Police Department. Mom was a traditional stay-at-home housewife. Um, Got a younger brother and older sister who's about nine years older than me. We all grew up going to Catholic school right there in New Orleans East. Um, Good upbringing, you know, quiet. New Orleans, you know, good neighborhood. You could walk to everybody's house. Everything was close by, walk to the store and everything.
0: So it was pretty good little
1: upbringing.
0: Any interesting stories to share from childhood in the East?
1: Not a whole bunch other than just growing up in the East. (laughs) It really really was just go to school, go home, do our thing. Uh, Tight knit little family. uh, Had a little pool that just used to drive my dad nuts because he was always gone, you know, working regular police shifts and work in detail. So he wasn't, you know, he was gone all the time. Um, and, you know, coming home at all odd hours of the night, but, you know, great little house, a lot of tight friends down there. It's a good little spot.
0: Were you drawn to anything at school growing up? Um, mathematics and science were really my passion. Um,
1: really, you know, I was an A student. I got pretty good grades in school. Um, in, you know, in grade school, not a whole bunch, uh, you know, just like playing with Legos and Star Wars stuff and all that good, you know, all the stuff kids did in the early eighties. What about high school? High school, right when I started high school, we moved from, my dad had retired from the New Orleans police department, went to work for a drilling company offshore and we moved at that point. So I jumped from eighth grade going to school, private school in New Orleans and started public school in Mississippi in ninth grade. So we made that jump just to the North shore. There were a bunch of retired New Orleans police officers that lived in the same little neighborhood that we moved into. And that was kind of a shock start school up here. You know, small school down there, accelerated classes. Um, You know, all my friends were walking distance. You know, going to a public school up here, it wasn't much bigger. you know, then than the private school was down there, but there were about a year or two behind on class work. So all the stuff I was taking in ninth grade, I had in like sixth or seventh grade, the private school system. Um, didn't have a lot of friends, couldn't really walk anywhere up here. Um, neighborhood was kind of cool because it's a gated neighborhood. There's a little beach and a swimming pool not too far from the house. So a lot of the kids just kind of hung out there. But it was definitely a shop coming up here.
0: It's your dad. Just didn't like being home, huh? From police officer to offshore. What well, he offshore? He just he
1: well, he was on the New Orleans Police Department. He was a uh, he was a paramedic at one point for the New Orleans Police Department. Then he went. He was on motorcycles for a little while, and when he you know just got tired of the New Orleans Police Department, some of the politics involved with it, so he took the paramedic. Ex- uh experience that he had from working on the police department and he was a safety um safety rep on rigs offshore um so um, it's kind of funny almost kind of the same thing i'm doing now is what he was doing offshore originally started with otoko offshore drilling i want to say in 85 um and then he moved over um was bought out and he went to work for diamond offshore drilling. But when he went to work for Diamond, he ended up working overseas. So he was working um, um, off the coast of Africa, North Sea, that type of stuff, where he was gone about 28 days at a time. So he went from the 14-day hitches that he's working in the Gulf to the long hitches that he was working overseas.
0: Is that what drew you toward the maritime industry? No. Um, actually, um, coming up through high
1: school, I was always really Um, interested in car stereos and audio systems and cars Um, and started going to college Um, It you know money was always a struggle with one working parent so it was just one of those things three kids coming up through private schools Um, so anything we wanted we had to work for Um, and I had scholarships to uh, junior college up out of Popperville and I elected to go there because it was closer to home. It would have been more affordable. Um, Did about a year of that. And it's just at that time, jobs were just kind of hard to come by. Um, Even people, the guy delivered on a newspaper, had a degree in chemical engineering and, you know, had friends that were getting out of school with degrees they could do nothing with. Um, So I ended up just kind of working. Um, I was working two or three jobs, worked at Pizza Hut, Walmart, all at the same time. Um, and then I had a friend that opened a car stereo um, place. He was, you know, I was my passion and my interest. So he's like, look, I just want you to come over here and work on car stereo. So I really just kind of went that direction. I did that for about three or four years, managing a car stereo um, place, putting in car stereos. But it was still, it was week to week, you know, you had to really work to get your money. And a lot of guys that were coming there with wads of money to buy car stereo equipment all worked on tow boats. And one day when I just had enough of barely making car notes, I just kind of ended up going out on the boats just to have a little bit more steady paycheck. And then when I was home, I could still do the car stereo stuff on the side. But I did what I wanted to do. I didn't do what I had to do to, to put money
0: in my pocket. Well, tell me about your introduction to uh, the towboating world. So I had a bunch of friends that worked out there. A couple of worked for
1: um, fuelers, a couple were on-rigging crews. Um, at the time, there were I had two real options. McKinney was hiring for $55 a day. And Compass Marine was hiring for 60 a day. Um, so about three or four of us all hopped in a car, drove down to, uh, down to Algiers and got jobs at Compass Marine starting on boats. And, uh, it was really my first foray out there. I've always loved boats. Um, and I did, you know, at a period in time between leaving the car stereo business and getting a job on a boat, um, a friend of mine hooked me up with this old guy that was bringing, uh a Grand Banks, um, yacht down the Tom Bigby river. And I went up there, just drove me up, dropped me off. He just needed a can to get through the locks and stuff. And I rode down to Tom Bigby, got so much old Hollywood boats and stuff running over there. And so, I mean, I always kind of had a passion for the water. Um, so it was, you know, kind of natural, At the break point in my life, I'll go out there, figure out what I want to do with it. I didn't plan on working more than, you know, a summer or two out on boats and then figuring out what I wanted to do with life. Um, But McKinney, I mean, uh, Compass was a pretty good little jump start. Um, Worked on Miss Nari, was the first boat that I ever set foot on, which oddly enough was a Z-Drive boat um, that they used to push the RV barges around way back when. It was, uh, I want to say, October of 91. And they just took me and dropped me off on a boat. I was there all by myself on a boat in the shipyard, me and the chief engineer, who I rarely saw. And uh, they came and got me about a week later and put me on a couple of boats um, running east out to the uh, coal power power plants in Pensacola and Panama City
0: as a deckhand out there. But
1: I did end up getting on a, a couple of the boats with a couple of my friends. So I kind of eased it up. Well,
0: tell me about Compass and. and uh... I guess any highlights of your, your time on deck?
1: Yeah. Compass was, it's you know, small, um, small company owned by Eddie Conrad at the time they crewed a lot of other people's boats. So he had, you know, nine or 10 boats that were his, and then he had three boats up in North Carolina working in some coastal trade up there, um, for Texas Eastern. And then, uh. They crewed some boats for National, crewed some boats for some other companies around here. But only about two months into my towboat career, I remember we were all sitting around on boats in Alabama Canal over in Gulf Shores waiting on some weather to clear up. And I did, I remember a bunch of representatives coming out there. And they that's when mid, uh, might have been Orgolf or Mid-South Towing or something like that at the time, took back three of the boats. And uh, they just came and got all the crews off of them. And it was kind of a shock to us. You know, I just started out here and already, you know, stuff's getting taken out of service and moved around. Um, but I ended up just kind of sticking with it. And uh, But it was it was an adventure back then. It was really a different world. Uh, you know, we wore shorts on toe and tennis shoes and nobody really bothered us. It was just a different, it was a different era.
0: Any other major differences between then, uh, then and now? Yeah, it's, I mean, you didn't have
1: contact with the house like you do now. Um, if you got to an area where they had a phone at the dock, there was usually, you know, a, a small squabble on who was going to get off the boat and go to the pay phone first. Um, sometimes you had to walk through some pretty, pretty shady areas to get to where the cell phone was at. Um. I mean, other than that, it was just uh, it was just a different pace back then. You didn't have the constant communication with the office. It was either by phone, um, by the old Marine operators back in the day, uh, you know, that type of thing, or by radio. Um, so you didn't have the order changes and stuff. It didn't seem like it back then. Life was just a little simpler. Um, boats were a little simpler. You know, you had a stack of VHS tapes and you memorized movies because you watched the same tape over and over um, you know, if you were lucky enough, be in an area where you could get a TV signal. It was just something, something
0: special. But mostly we just entertained ourselves by reading books. What was the training process back then? I know you said you just walked on a boat with shorts and tennis shoes, but uh tell me about getting that on deck. Well, they first they started you by sticking in front
1: of a TV with a stack of videotapes, and you'd watch all those. And they were about half wore out and boring. Then they'd just bring you out. They'd pair you up with somebody. You learned a lot of stuff by getting yelled at. Um, you know, don't do that. Don't do this. Um, you know, I had different caps I worked with. One of them, he wanted grits cooked every day. You'd cook grits. He wouldn't eat them. He just wanted them cooked. So once you started figuring out the nuances and stuff like that, it really wasn't too bad. And I learned early as a deckhand that if a cap ever called down on a PA system and asked, asked you what you were doing, nothing was never the right answer. Um I always tried to stay busy. I'd get on a boat for the beginning of a two-week or 28-day hitch and I'd figure out the stuff I wanted to do during that hitch. I was gonna paint this or I was gonna take this apart and clean it or I was gonna fix this. Um if you stayed busy at the time just went by quicker. And if I'm gonna be on a boat and you know it's like all things in my life, I just if I'm going to be there, I want to try to leave it better than I found it. So, you know, if I was on there and something was broken, I try to fix it, you know, Hey, we need this, but I, you know, I learned, you know, pretty, pretty quick on that, you know, if you did stuff right the first time, you didn't have to do it twice. And I do remember, you know, the shock out there was having to cook for a group of people. Cause I never really cooked before I, you know, eggs and some pancakes for myself but all of a sudden I was you know hitting the pay phone everybody's calling my wife I'm calling my mom how do you cook grit you know how you cook this how you cook that um but one thing that you know towboat in those days and you know these days you know on top of that it teaches people how to be independent you know you learn how to you learn skill sets and life life lessons that they don't teach in school. Um, you know, of course, you know, they have home ec classes and stuff like that. But, you know, you did learn that side of stuff. The You know, I was taught the right way to, you know, clean up stove, the right way to clean the floor, the right way. And it's, you know,
0: stuff that just in regular life, you just don't figure out. How long were you with Compass and what came next in your career?
1: Compass was maybe about a year and a half, two years. And then they got bought out by Memco. Um, and it was kind of weird because there were a bunch of company, a bunch of purchases through that sequence that they were seamless to us on the boats. We didn't really see it other than, you know, somebody, the names on the checks changed a little bit back in that day. I didn't really notice it that much. Um, but we were bought by Memco. Memco, um, had a couple of different transitions in there. Electric fuels corporation, Carolina power, uh, power and power light, um, but Memco was, I, I liked working for Memco because they really took care of the boats. Um, you know, other boats we'd get around at docks and fleets, you know, the condition of the Memco boats was just, it was a, a standard apart. They took care of the equipment. They they had high expectations on work production. You know, they expected you to, to work. Uh, you know, we used to always comment that, you know, with Memco, it's always throttles on a dash. Um, we moved a lot of stuff, we worked hard, but you always had a piece of equipment you could trust. Um, but about that two year window that I was with Compass was and Memco came in and bought out, that's one about the time that I got to that point in my life where I had the sea time to get a credential. At the time we were working on the time, Big B River moving wood chips. Um wood chips and logs, which was a great run. I loved the time Bigby. It was just, it was a different world over there. Um, you didn't really hear from the office. You just worked with the doc. The doc wanted this moved to here. You moved it. Um, we, you know, did a pretty good bit of fishing over there. It's a great little spot. And the time Bigby's kind of like a microcosm for the Mississippi River. Every, it's just a smaller version of it. But that was about the time I started getting. Interested in getting a credential, started getting a little boat handling experience, worked with some great captains um, that were interested in training me. I worked with uh, Mac Nelson, used to work on a compass point with him, Jimmy Casalas, um, the late JC Bonner, uh, Sean Casey, all guys that were, hey, come up here. I'm going to show you some stuff. Come up here you know, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna teach you a little bit. And they spent a lot of time making sure that I had skills and it was great working under a group of people like that, because you learn there wasn't always one way to skin a cat. There were several different ways to get this done. They were all real patient with me. Um, and it was just a great experience. So that's kind of was my introduction into the wheelhouse over there on the time baby river, running up and down there, making dock shifts back in Epps, Alabama um great experience and they it, it had a great opportunity and there were three of us that all got our credentials right up at the same time and, and they got us in the well as back then it was the uh a second class second class pilot's license or second class operator's license operator of uninspected towed vessel which is equivalent to the mate pilot li- uh, license that's out today didn't have a tow or you just had to pass the test then legally, you can run a boat, whether you were trained or not. But <laughs> luckily, we had a company that wanted to train us.
0: Before we get too far into your wheelhouse career, do any uh, any especially memorable stories come to mind from your, your time before the wheelhouse? All kinds of stuff.
1: Um, you know, work, working with log barges over there was always some crazy stuff going on over there, snakes and, raccoons and I, I found a baby raccoon on a boat one time and uh we we had it milk crate and i remember safety guy ed chandler came out to the boat he walks on the boat and he turned and, turned the corner and <laughs> had a milk crate back there with a baby raccoon on it and he just kind of looked at me it's like you know that's not supposed to be on here i was like I, I couldn't just leave it you know i had to do something with it and uh he actually went to the store and got a bunch of little milk bottles for the thing um and brought it back so we tried to nurse it nurses back to health but it was just a little it was a little too too young to to make it but it was always an adventure with that type of stuff and log barges they logs are the last thing they put in the barge before it becomes a spar barge or goes to the scrap yard so every time we went to pick one of these barges up it was always an adventure and you go out there to pick a barge up and be checking wing tanks and i remember opening a wing tank one time there was a fish in there about 18 inches long just sitting right there at the top of it Tank looking at me. I was like, well, I don't think we're going to pump that one. And you just put the lid back on it. And then there was another one. We made a trip all the way back from Scottsboro, Alabama, on the Tennessee River, all the way back to the log yard down there at Epps, Alabama. And uh, as soon as we tied the barge up, all the logs just rolled off the top of the barge. It was like, man, it's a good thing we weren't standing out there. Um, just fun stuff like that. Uh, they sent us up to Crossit, Arkansas, the Washita River, one time. And it took us. We went up there two two barges loaded with chipped up rubber tires and they were trying to unload them at a dock up there with a two yard bucket. And it took us two weeks. Every time they go to drop that bucket, the barge would hit the rubber and just bounce right out. So I mean it was a slow, slow process. But it was interesting. It, you know, just we used to run up rivers that you never really, you know, I didn't know. Boats could go up there. Lockmen were happy to see us. You'd be out there tying a the lock on. They'd be showing you pictures of fish they caught out there that week. It was it was an adventure. But one really, really cold winter and one really, really hot summer was enough to
0: convince me I didn't want to be on deck. Well, tell me about your first time at the sticks.
1: First time at the sticks. Um, I just, I remember we had a, it was a pretty short boat pretty tall, boat. it's only about 60 feet long. And I remember we were down in Estatopper River down there in, uh, uh, or it's Gambia River in, in, Pensacola. And the captain just, he called me up there. He said, I want you to do this. He said, I want you to back this boat backwards up this river for at least a mile. And I flipped that boat around, just spun it. I don't know how many times, but he he sat there and just worked with me until I got it done and just kind of escalated from there. Um, on getting boat handling, you know, down pat by the time I got cut loose in the wheelhouse, I'd already had a pretty good bit of just stick time as a deck time. But I will tell you, you know, and tell everybody that, you know, I worked hard as a deckhand, I worked swing watches, and did everything else, tow work. I've never been as exhausted in my life as the first two hitches I ran solo in the wheelhouse. It's so mentally exhausting. That, you know, and I had guys I worked with that had pilot's license and just never went to the wheelhouse. And I didn't understand why you wouldn't go through the trouble of getting it and not make a career in the glass box up there with the air conditioning and the heater. But it was exhausting. It was really, really exhausting. Um, And then as you build your confidence in yourself and you start to learn what you can do and what you shouldn't be doing. I, I mean, even looking back on the day, you know, running some of the bridges the way we used to run them back then. I mean, I wouldn't do it now. Uh, I guess consequences weren't as far in everybody's mind now, but if you made a bridge and you went down through it and, you know, you had five feet on each side, we were like, we're good. We didn't rub. Um, Now looking back on it, it's just, you know, some of the bridges have been replaced, like 14 mile railroad bridge um, down there north of mobile. But it was, uh, it was definitely, you know, eye open and getting up there, and then all of a sudden you're responsible for people. Um, and, you know, it's not just you out there doing your thing and watching out for yourself. Now you're responsible for everybody that's walking around out there. And uh, it really taught me to, to really slow down and think about what everybody – but the one of the most important things I've ever had anybody say when I was training was um, – it was Jimmy Casalas. In fact, he was –
0: Don't ever forget where you came from.
1: And that stuck with me.
0: Well, fill me in, I guess, in in whatever detail you can about standing watch. What was so exhausting or what is so exhausting about that? It's one of the things
1: that, you know, we did in like Siemens Church used to do a uh, simulator used to do a thing where they keep a little counter and. Every time you picked up a mic and keyed it, every time you reached over for something, every time you did something, they would hit that little counter. And in a 10 or 15 minute simulation, they'd look at the little counter to done, uh, to, at you're done with it. Every time you picked up that mic and had a conversation, every time you answered the cell phone, every time you touched the throttle, every time you moved the stick, every time you touched the button on the dash, it's a decision. And then when they pick that number up and show it to you, you realize how I many decisions you made 10, 15 minutes. Um, now those, you know, situations can be a little elevated, but that doesn't mean, you know, just going in a lock, meeting a bunch of yachts that are coming out of a lock. you know, decide whether or not you're going to run across the Mississippi sound. Do I have time to make it across it? What's the weather going to be? Do I need to lay additional rig in, you know, what do I need to do? Um, it's all of that stuff. It's it's just the mental the, the amount of decisions
0: you have to make in a short period of time. All right. So you got into the wheelhouse with Memco, correct?
1: Um. Yeah, I was uh, with uh, Memco. Um, they uh, Metco, I think, is what they were calling it. Uh, calling it back then, Marine Equipment Transportation Company, which was the kind of the boat version of Memco. Um, the small boats we operated out of Bell Chase, Louisiana. Um, they were. You know, I think we had nine or twelve boats that were in that little mix down there.
0: Where did your career take you next? Um, from there, um at some point, this is you know, mid, maybe
1: late nineties, we started noticing that the small boats were disappearing. Um, so we had 12 and then we had 10, and then we had nine, and then we had eight. And I started to realize one day I might not have a job if I don't figure something out. At that point, I made a phone call um, to one of the port captains in Cape Girardeau was at the time was where Memco's ops office was, and I asked them, "Look, if I come train on the Ohio River boats, well, you know, do I have a chance at that?" And they said, "They said they'd give me a shot." So. I was working a 28, 14-day hitch. Um, it's the Miss Ashley Christine um, was the name of the boat at the time. Compass had it as the Abbey C. It was renamed as uh, uh, the Ashley Christine, Miss Ashley Christine, after one of Chris Parsons' daughters. Um, in <laughs> come full circle, I'm working for Ingram now. That boat's in, in my in my window. It's working over there in Houston. Um But I started noticing small boats so we were working 28-day hitch, and then um, I'd get off the boat, and I'd go home, repack a bag, drive up to Cape, and I'd go get on a 3600 on the Ohio River, and I did that for about four or five months and got posted up and trained on the 3600s and then won a spot as a pilot up there on one of the 3600s. So they pulled me off the small boats, Moved up there, and I don't think I was up there running my own watch, maybe two, three hitches. And I got a call from port captain. And he said, "Look, I'm going to come get you off the boat. You know, when y'all get down to Fort Massac and in Paducah." And it was like, it was late. I mean, it was like late at night. And I was like, "Why are you coming to get me in the middle of the night?" He said, "I just, I can't tell you, but you know, I'll tell you once I pick you up." And he came and picked me up got me off the boat. He said, we're going to send you home for about four days, but then we're going to call you back. And what happened was the three thirty-six hundreds that they were operating up there, they got rid of the 33 and the cruise just kind of went with the boat. Why they kept me, I didn't make any sense to me at the time, but I figured it out pretty quick because they brought me back and put me on a bigger boat on the back watch. And then they sent that boat down to the new Orleans Harbor. And uh so that that was where I figured out, well, that's what they wanted me for because I had worked in the fleets in New Orleans. I was from the area, so that was the 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 mindset behind it. And uh then I spent the next five to six years of my life just running the harbor from Baton Rouge, Louisiana to Myrtle Grove. Um went from a forty three hundred horsepower boat Ended up on a 6,000-horsepower boat, and that's all we did was make and break toes. And really got a chance to, you know, learn the harbor, learn everything between Baton Rouge to Myrtle Grove, like the back of my hand.
0: Anything interesting come to mind from that phase of your career?
1: Yeah, a lot of it. A lot of tow building. Um, I've always been a puzzle person. I love puzzles. Um, so just trying to figure out how to take apart, you know, a 40 barge tow and put it back together. Um, running long tows with small boats. Um, getting around ships. Learning, <laughs> learning how not to be in, the, in a ship's way. Uh, dealing with, you know, traffic situations when you have that much stuff going on. Hurricanes. But uh, it was a great opportunity down there, and all that stuff. And it was in that phase of my career where I moved from a, a pilot position to a, a captain's position down there. Um, I was working under uh, great captains, taught me how to run stuff over there. Uh, Tom Flint, Marlon Chaplin, uh, Marlon Chaplin was uh, captain on the Margaret O. was the boat I was running down there to six thousand, and uh, it got bought from, uh, or he retired when he retired, he made sure that he wanted me to take his slot on a front watch position. So it was a big thing for me. I was young. I was a young captain back then. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, 20, 26, 27 years old working on boats that, you know, most of the guys that run the front watch positions were, you know, in their fifties and sixties.
0: What size toes were you pushing around on that 6,000?
1: Um, 30s mostly because um, we were building toes for the bigger boats. In some cases, uh, you know, it, it'd get bigger than that. Uh, 30 southbound in good water conditions, 25 if it was up a little bit. Um, northbound toes, uh, you know, 36 wasn't unusual.
0: What, what happened next in your career?
1: Um, in running back and forth um, through the harbor down there, I did make a couple of runs at the Federal Pilots Association, trying to get in there um, to ship pilots. Um, I think I made two or three runs at it while I was still on the boat. Um, and then we had uh, back in two thousand three, and um, this was under AEP at that point in time. We had a uh, a, a fatality with one of my crew members i wasn't on the boat when it happened but it was down at uh, a travel reserve uh little guy i worked worked with us for a while um name was t tad couldn't read you know he'd come to the boat crew was teaching him how to read um spoke fluent french great little dude take care of his whole extended family but they had a line break and he got hit by the line um got the call i was sitting at the house about four o'clock in the morning and got the phone call. Um, that something bad had happened and after that event it happened while two boats were turned and, and uh, management just made a decision mark canoy said we're just not going to turn boats down there anymore so they brought all the boats up out of there that were doing that work and when they did that um i had to go back up and, and get reacquainted with the lower mississippi river and the ohio um, but i ran the lower for Probably about a year or so on Donna rushing, working under Captain uh, Tom Flint and Vernon Sturgeon, both river legends. Those guys knew everything. Um, learned all that stuff. And then they pulled me off of there, put me in the front watch back on the Ohio River on Drew Lorette. And that was probably, I want to say, 2004, 2005. I was running front watch on the Drew Lorette on the 6000 up on the Ohio, going from uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia down to Cairo.
0: Interestingly, I believe the Donna Rushing was the first vessel I ever stepped foot on, with uh, with AEP. That's a great boat. (laughs) I rode it from um, from Belmont Fleet down to Myrtle Grove and then back up to Dockside. Hopped off there, but uh, they—I think they just redone it. Was it? It's when they did all the green uh, green effort stuff on it, all LED lights,
1: and a lot of the work that they put into it. Um, AEP was a great company on trying to really further stuff and, you know, push the envelope on making things,
0: you know, better and greener and uh, working
1: for a power company, it was pretty high in their, in their
0: mindset. I was only with AEP for about six months before they sold. Tell me a little bit about that company from your perspective.
1: It was a great company. It was you know the thing when I made my transition shore side off the boats in 2005, we had um, an AEP, you know power companies predominantly what they had the river river industry side of it was fairly small in their eyes, but it was necessary. Um, they also had the barge fleets were all operated under the under the name Elmwood um, at the time. Eventually all that stuff would come under one umbrella. Um, but we had a vendor that was working, um, operating the tow boats, the convent fleet down there. And they had, they, they sank three boats. They burnt a the boat. They had two big barge breakaways, just a lot going on, a lot of craziness. And I was at a captains and pilots meeting up in, uh, Nashville. And I was walking down the hall and I got pulled into a room, um, by a few people. And I started looking around the room like, oh, oh am I in trouble? But it was uh, Mark Canoy and Keith Darlin, um, John Byer, and a few others. And they explained to me what the problem was going on down there at Convent. And they knew I had experience running tugs and, and small boats in the Harbor. They knew I had experience running the line haul down in that area. They knew it worked in and around that type of operation. So they asked me and John Byer and a few others to go down there and try to figure out what was going on get a wrap on it. Um, and try to try to get things calmed down. And I was real nervous after, you know, getting all the way to that point, getting on the boats in the wheelhouse. I was nervous about getting off the boats. Um, I was operating six thousands. I had a goal in my mind. In fact, Bruce Darst, uh, with AEP caught me at a meeting, uh, I Want to say it was in Louisville, Kentucky, he asked me, so what do you want to do with your career? I said, Well, I, you know, want to get on a six thousand, get on an eight thousand, eventually get on a ten thousand and just, you know, operate the biggest boat there is, and then, you know, eventually get a shore position. And he was there at that meeting one year later and he was just sitting there in the corner and he's just like, We're gonna skip a step. We just we're not gonna wait for you to get to them big, big boats. We want you to go ahead and come in the office now. And that's when I figured out where I knew it was going. I was real nervous about it. And I was calling people. And I called Jeff, Captain Jeff Stover was my port captain at the time. I called him up. He said, if I take this, is it a mistake? He goes, I don't think it's a, it's a mistake at all. He said, but understand, you have to commit to it. He said, once you do it, that's it. And uh, so I came down to um, New Orleans as a fleet manager uh, was my term working for uh, Terrence Gomez was, was Scott was taking control down there and, uh, me and my mate off the, off the Margaret, that worked in the Harbor with me, Sam Barrios came with me. It was the two of us. We came as a pair, Mutt and Jeff, um, go down there, and figure out what's going on. And I spent about the first six to eight months show up every morning, you know, five, six o'clock in the morning, we get our coffee, go out on a crew boat. We did the same thing. The fleet mates were doing, go checking and tow, check and ties. Operating behind the scenes, being quiet and watching everything to see what was going on. And after a while, you know, started watching the boats and, you know, figuring out what was going on, making some improvements to the fleet, shoring up the rigging, learning about, you know, all the different stuff involved in the fleet. Um, So that was a pretty eye-opening, you know, point in time where you, you learned a whole new aspect of what was going on. And I, I was probably the first company, first person in the entire company to get a BlackBerry when it came out. Because Mark and I was like, we don't want you stuck behind a computer. We're going to give you this neat little device that you can type on. Okay. Um, so that, that was pretty, pretty crazy. But, you know, it was hard work. And one of the craziest things uh, we had, well, of course, Katrina hit in 2005. And I was right smack in the middle of me being responsible for the barge fleets. Um, and that was a mess. It was a real mess. It was, there was a lot. It took us months just to figure out what was going on. We were missing equipment. We had barges in downtown Gulfport. I remember RJ Corman calling me saying, hey, we can get the barges out the Gulfport for you. I was, I'm not writing that check, but I'll find a person who can. Uh, but we, we got things put back together. Um, you know, it was a pretty big setback. But we got it done. The hardest thing after Katrina was just getting labor as we couldn't find people to crew boats. We couldn't find people to run boats. You know, I'd have a fleet there with 136 barges at dockside, you know, 450 barges up in Convent. I'd have two boats if I was lucky. Um, so we made the boy, and the management if y'all want to do this right, we really need to crew and operate our own boats. And they called me up and said, if we send you, six boats can you crew and operate them well, man I, I don't know but that's at that point it just kind of went from me being a fleet mate or a fleet manager to now i'm a port captain and they sent me six boats they weren't in the best condition <laughs> but uh the good thing about that whole situation was they they said do it right so we took our time you know, made sure the equipment was maintained as best as we could get it. We were bringing crews down from Ohio and Kentucky um, because we just couldn't hire anybody around here. So a lot of the crews from out of town. When we were borrowing people from the power plant side of the company, they were all union. And sometimes I'd have union deckhands, non-union deckhands, and I couldn't crew a whole boat because I had union guys that wouldn't work or couldn't work with the with the non-union guys on the same vessel. Um, so it was a lot, but we got, we got through it with the downtime on the boats. They started to kind of put two and two together. It's like, y'all probably need some new boats. And they made an effort to build some new boats, and that's where we started getting the safety boats started coming in. Originally, it was supposed to be six, six turned into 12, 12 turned into 18. Then they're like, hey, we're going to send you two more. Um, and that's, you know, kind of where everything really blew up down there. At the point we were six, eight boats in, it's about the time things we, the emergency phase of trying to get that operation off the ground, the fun part, you know, where if you needed stuff, you just went to Home Depot, put it on a company credit card. All that was starting to slow down, it was starting to get back into purchase orders and stuff like that, um, at which point I just remember John, John Byer was the ops manager down there. I was his poor captain. I just remember him walking in my office and sitting down looking at me, said, I'm done. I'm out. He said, I'm, this isn't fun anymore. I'm going back on boats. And then he walked out and I was in panic mode. I was like, I can't handle this. And uh, Tom Reeves, who just passed away recently, walked in. He said, you've got this. You've been doing it. He said, just just go with it.
0: Backtracking just a little bit. I uh, I ran into Sam Barrios last week in New Orleans, and uh, he uh, will say is hesitant to get on this podcast. Tell me about him as, as a mate with you and then a little bit about his uh, his time.
1: Sam was awesome. Uh, I worked with him a little bit on some of the smaller boats, but I really came back. He was my mate on the on the Margarito and the crew on that boat. Since we handled so much rigging, I mean, it every day, every day. We took 30 sets of rigging, you know, 50 sets of rigging off the boat. We put 50 sec- sets of rigging back on the tow. And it, was just, it was every day. I, I calculated just, you know, we had an 8,000-pound stack of ratchets on the front deck of that boat, and it'd be all the ratchets off the boat, all the ratchets on the boat every day. That's a lot of rigging, and it was constant. We had a six-man deck crew on that boat just because the amount of tow work we did. All them guys were huge, and they'd go out there, and they would work for, you know, work for six hours and come back, lift weights for three hours, and then go lay down. It was just, it was a work crew. We still kept the boat up. The boat was still painted. It was still clean. And, you know, Sam was my right-hand man on that boat. He was a true mate, you know, and he ran the deck crew. If I had an issue with the deck crew, I could just go to Sam. Not that the deck crew could never come up there and just have a conversation if they wanted. But he ran the deck crew. He made sure things were done. If he said the tow was ready to go, I knew it was. It was no question about it. I'd work with other mates that they'd walk by my room, see me put my boots on, and They're like, "What are you doing?" So I'm going to check toe. Next thing I know, they were running out the front door. Um, but he, he took care of business. Um, great guys, and same thing. He worked with Tad and me, and you know, all these guys. Would Sam had an apartment up in Baton Rouge? All these guys would come into town from out of town. They'd stay with Sam the night before they came out, and you know. We had good times. We had good times, and it was off the boat as much of a comrade as when you're on the boat. And when we came shoreside, I was lit, still living in Mississippi at the time. Sam was living down there. Uh, actually, I just got an apartment, and uh, he <laughs> had just got an apartment. And uh, slide L right there when we get off the twin span. I remember after we finished making all the fleet preps during Katrina, I was riding by his apartment. I was like, we well, called him. I was like, where are you at? He said, I'm at the apartment. I said, you can't stay there. I said, come up by the house. So I, my dad and my mom got them out of town. So it was me and Sam at the house for the storm. And I just remember going to sleep that night, and getting up, walking out of my room the next day, and Sam and some guy are just sitting there watching TV in the kitchen. I was like, where did this guy come from? He's like, oh, that's so-and-so. And they both went to watch this little black-and-white battery TV we had. And I was like, well, where did he come from? He just, we're in a gated neighborhood. He can't just roll in here. And it's like, oh, he came with your brother last night with the news crew because my brother worked for Channel 4 News at the time. And I, I one of the news reporters came out of one of the rooms in the house and was, apparently they were going to try to stay in Gulfport and all ended up here at the house. And uh, after that, it was, it was like a four-hour drive with the twins fan down the two lanes, you know, one lane in each direction everything to get from here to where we had to go to work. So we ended up renting a house, me and Sam, a little house, four doors down from a bar, and Lily, over there at the base of the bridge, right, right next to McGuire, uh, 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 McGuire's Pub. And it was just a great time. It was just we had fun. It was just always a good time. We were just – ran everywhere together, took care of business. After Katrina, like three months after Katrina, I remember me and him, it was the night before Thanksgiving. We were supposed to come up to my family's house and come eat Thanksgiving. And Sam and I were out at dockside fleet trying to pump water out of the hopper of a fish meal barge that sank during Katrina. So this is from August all the way to November. We're out there pumping the stuff out and it was disgusting. Disgusting. In fact, when we were ready to go, one deckhand walked up. He said, "Can I help you?" He didn't make it within thirty feet of us, and he lost his lunch. But we had to go out and park a lot, change clothes, throw our stuff in the dumpster before we could go home. And I remember sitting there trying to eat Thanksgiving dinner the next day, and it was rough. <laughs> but uh, Sam's been a great guy. Uh, when I moved into the port captain position, he moved into the fleet, still the fleet manager position I was in. We've just kind of been. Tit for tat the whole way up through the through the thing. He's he really cares about what he does. He cares about people. Um he's uh you know he's a hard worker. He plays hard, but he's a hard worker if you can count on him in a pinch. Uh, but great to work with.
0: Well no, of course he is now since reconnected with Mr. Uh, Terrence Gomez. Tell me about working with Terrence.
1: Terrence was always uh that was a fun it was fun back in the day. Uh, he, he knew we were there to do, to, to take care of things. Um, he kind of let us do our things, you know, take care of what you got to take care of. Don't embarrass me. Um, and I, it was just, you know, it was good working for him. In fact, the little house, uh, Sam and I were renting and Luling was owned by, um, Terrence's mom and, uh, Terrence lived about four blocks away. So it wasn't anything for us to go stay with Terrence. In fact, during the aftermath of Katrina, we stayed with at Terrence's house until uh until we got the the little house rented over there. But it was like, you know, his wife Wendy to always take care of us. She'd go buy us socks and stuff, make sure we had everything we needed, make sure we were fed in the evening. So um but Terrence was it was just great working with him. It was no nonsense. Um, you know, this needs to be done. This is what we're gonna do. Um you know, one of those managers that makes decisions. You know, what do you want to do with this? Well, let's do this. Okay, you know, that's easy enough for me. It's it's tough for me when people won't make decisions. You just, at some point, somebody just has to call the ball. What do you want? And we'll get it done. Um, but great to work with. You know,
0: lenient, took care of us.
1: Um, just
0: you know, great all around guy. Well, backtrack into your career. So you go shoreside, two thousand five. I joined the industry ten years later and meet you. In the uh, the AEP office. I believe we left off with your career as a busy port captain, getting busier.
1: So I was a port a port captain for um a few years. It was a couple of years before John left. Um, when John left, I moved into an operations manager position, at which point we're in the process of starting some operations over in Alabama. The boats that we built to work in the fleet, they were deciding if they were gonna have some boats operating on a canal. Um, they started building me a couple of re-delivery boats up in Greenville, Mississippi, a couple of thirty three hundred. So my role was kind of expanding on that side on just the, the the scope of operations. On the other side of that whole situation was, you know, trying to take a fledgling operation that we built from just an old office that we all showed up to every day to a functioning, you know, business um with budgets and all this other stuff. So I was learning that side of the business as well, having come off the boats. Um, So when I moved into the ops manager position, I ended up having three port captains working under me. Um, I think, in fact, when I started the whole operation, uh, Sean Dozat, who is now with Turn Services, was the very first person I hired. But Denny Palmer was the very first person that showed up for work. Um, Great guys to work with. I mean, they're just absolutely just rock stars anything you needed they took care of it um sean was one of the first ones i brought into the office as a port captain he was working on uh, on the boats and we had high river and we had a ship that was wagging back and forth in the anchorage pretty bad and it broke a line and when it broke that line they had a harbor tug that was alongside trying to keep the ship stabilized sean had initially called said so the ship was out of control. I'm not going to put a rig on the side of it and, uh, got the Harbor tug over there to try to help stabilize the ship. But when that line broke, it ended up coming back through the wheelhouse of that Harbor tug and caused the fatality. Second line strike in my career that resulted in the bad situation. But throughout all that, Sean never lost his cool. He had everything. Look, got to do this. This has got to happen. This has got to happen. And, uh, you know, he just—he really had his head about him, and that's like that's the kind of guy I need as port captain. I need somebody that can really, you know, keep their cool, um, and do stuff. Um, also had Wayne Lejeune that I brought in the office. We brought him over from Weber. Yeah, Wayne was kind of an action guy. So I had Sean was a deep thinker, and I had Wayne as the action guy. And he just kind of—I need this to take care of. He come back in there and take care of. I was like that quick. He said it's done. Um. So and he had a lot of experience, so we brought in there. And then after a little while, brought Mark. Mark Murphy came in, and, and he was my third port cat. I brought in there. Mark was my dreamer. He was like, you know, we want to start a recycling program. I was like, for well, you, go do that. And uh, he made it happen. He would pioneer a lot of stuff, get a lot of stuff off the ground that you know we just didn't have the energy or the. I, it's hard to say, you know, just a, just couldn't just wait out the amount of time it took to get anything like that started but he made it happen and uh you know so he had a group of boats um sean had a group of boats and uh and wayne had a group of boats and i was more an operation manager where take care of budgets more overseeing stuff learning more about the, the business side of the business so it was just a big operation but it went from you know six boats to 23 boats in a dorm room that slept you know, 80 people to take care of all that stuff. It was just a lot. Did that for about four years. Um, and at some point in that mix, I got Jeff Kendall had come in and taken over um, management for the Gulf Ops. And Jeff was, he's one of those guys that he wants to be more involved in everything. So he wanted me to start getting involved in the industry stuff, um, Port Safety Council, Port Safety Council. The Tow and Safety Advisory Committee with the Coast Guard, um, the Maritime Navigation Safety Association. So I started AWO, I started getting more and more involved in all these extracurricular stuff. The more I got involved with that, the harder it was to take care of day to day operations in the fleet. As I, you know, at some point, I just I had that conversation with Keith Arlen, who was in charge at the time I was working for Time Reefs and those guys. I, look, you know, I can do this or I can do that, but I can't do both well. So they said, well, you've been doing operations stuff for, you know, four years now. Uh, Tim Callahan was in there as, as um, the head of engineering at the time. And they moved Tim into an overall ops manager position, moved me just into regulatory compliance. So I could just pursue those things that made a bigger difference in in the industry and be that representative to the Coast Guard, be that representative to the local um, officials, um, You know, work with uh, elected officials to get things done. And that was a, a really interesting transition in my career. Came more so under the tutelage of uh, Marty Hettle at that time, uh, who's with ACBL. Awesome guy. Um, but uh, it, it was a good you know, a good move for me to get more and more involved in the the nuts and bolts of what's going on behind
0: the scenes. Let's keep walking through your career. I know, of course, you end up at Ingram at some point.
1: Well, it's uh, so I moved into the uh, I was the director of regulatory compliance
0: um, over there.
1: That's when we also started tank barge stuff. So that was a crash course for me. I never dealt with tank barges before. I had to build the tank barge program from the ground up over there at AEP. Um, so that was all in that two-year window, um, at which point um, ACBL purchased uh, AEPs, the bulk of the assets, not all of it, but most of it, around 2015 or so. So I made that move over to ACBL for a couple of years, um, which a lot of the folks that you know we had worked with at AEP still just moved in, just kind of meshed the two companies up together. We had been through kind of a collision of two um, two entities when the Memco side of the house was purchased by AEP in 2001 and tried to mesh those two things together. Just kind of going through the same thing again with AEP, um, meshing with ACBL. Um, ended up doing, I was working for Jerry Torok at the new ACBL, still director of regulatory compliance. So, still essentially doing the same things I was doing at AEP, just doing it for ACBL now. Um, it did help out a little bit because somewhere in the midst of all that AEP stuff on the back end with all the dedication working in the fleets and working on the boats and all the travel uh, my marriage kind of fell apart Um, moved back to Mississippi in the middle right on the back end of the AEP stuff she said I was trying to keep the marriage together she said if she'd be closer to home, that it'd probably be a little better off. I had a five-year-old, six-year-old at the time trying to, you know, make sure that that didn't come apart. Um, So I moved back to Mississippi, and I was just coming to the office um, two days a week, and then pretty much telecommuting the rest of the time. Fine. I spent most of my time doing stuff on video calls, or or not video calls at the time, but conference calls with people that were in other states anyway, even when I did go in the office. So I was kind of one of the pioneer work-from-home type people. Um, but when ACBL bought us, and an office in Harahan, so it was even closer. So instead of two and a half hour drive, two hour drive from Mississippi to Convent, now I'm down to about an hour drive down to Harahan. So that worked out pretty good. And at, before I left, uh, before ACBL uh, bought AEP, Jeff Kendall had left, um, AEP to go work with Mark Kenoy who had left to go over to ACBL. So Mark Kenoy Jeff Kendall, Paul Tobe and all the man, upper management at AEP at some point had left to go over to ACBL anyway. So I ended up working right back for the same people I was working for. So there was a lot of familiarity in that. Um, but you know, I was part of the ACBL stuff, uh, working for Jerry Torok, still working day in and day out with Jeff Kendall. Um, got to meet some of the other guys who worked with Pack. Patrick Smith, who's their uh, director of regulatory compliance over there now. Uh, There was a lot of nerves when we first started meshing all these people together on, you know, how's this person going to fit with this person? But everybody over there really hit it off with. Me and Pat are still real good friends. In fact, I had dinner with him uh, uh, Tuesday night down in New Orleans. He was over for the NTSAC meet. We still talk, you know, at least once a month the problems throughout the industry are the problems without the end, you know, throughout the industry. So, you know, everybody that is involved in the type of work that we do is we have things to talk about.
0: Well, then the jump to Ingram, right? So I was
1: over at ACBL for two years, um, and loved working for ACBL, a lot of opportunity over there. Could have stayed over there 10 more years. Um, Ingram was looking for somebody to come over and help them with their tank barge stuff, help them with the compliance side of the house, and um, it just kind of seemed like an opportunity to make a change. Um, ACBL was owned by uh, investment firms. Ingram was privately owned. Um, it's a family-owned business. As big as it is, it's family-owned. Um, and they still had um, some benefits that I was after, um, you know, coming out the backside of the divorce, so... It, it just seemed like a good opportunity, you know, coming out of the divorce, making a jump over to Ingram and just kind of starting fresh, you know what I mean? Um, so that was kind of the move over. And the agreement was I get to ke- keep the same kind of telework type thing. I was doing before, so.
0: Well, walk me through your time with Ingram. I think you, you when did you join up with them?
1: Came over to Ingram, I want to say it was 18, 18. Um, April of 18 and I, five years ago, five and a half years ago. So um, when I first came over, um, they were looking for a regulatory compliance manager. And when I started talking to them, O called me up and said, we, we really want to get you in over here for something else. Um, and I ended up coming in as the tank barge quality assurance person. The intent was to try to formalize a lot of the tank large operations, um, make the operation more um, attractive to the oil co- uh, oil company customers, the, the OCIMF customers. A lot of the devil is in the detail with working with liquid customers and policy and procedures, the way they're written. Um, and since we had a lot of experience coming up through that with building the tank large program out over at AEP, That was one of the things I came in on. The other thing too, was to really establish a vendor vetting program and vetting criteria um, for all the people that handle all the tank barges. So that was kind of my first couple of years or first year or so over at Ingram. With all that stuff, again, goes back to the regulatory compliance. If you don't have solid policies, procedures, you don't have solid safety stats, then you don't have liquid customer business. So by nature of what I was doing with the tank barges, it was so ingrained in with the safety training compliance portion of it that eventually it just all kind of meshed up into that. And they kind of squished all that into one thing, uh, brought me in, just kind of started giving me an opportunity to come in, look at what needed to be done, restructure the department into very, I guess, uh, focused work area. So credentialing got eventually moved under me with Mike Morris, Um, the training side of the house, the compliance side of the house, the vetting side of the house and the safety. Um, So all those different aspects all really feed back into uh, putting stuff together for liquid customers. What I, I tell everybody, you know, when it comes to that portion of it, As barge companies, we produce two things. We produce freight, moving cargo from point A to point B, and we produce a set of statistics. We have to sell both of those. We have to sell the statistics. We have to sell the freight. Both of those have to be attractive to customers. If you don't have both of them, you don't have either. So that's what I've really been focused on the last four years or so since I've been over all of the uh, safety training and compliance over here.
0: Well, it's just about the hour here, sir. So one more question. I think we can wrap this one up. Aside from the obvious, uh, what has this industry meant to you in your life?
1: It's it's shown me that there's opportunity everywhere if you want it. Um, One of the beauties of this industry is it's not just boats. A lot of people tend to focus on the boats, but there's so many shoreside opportunities so many um support roles whether it's radio technicians or ac technicians or mechanics or um you know people that sell us equipment there's so many opportunities it's not just the boat it's there's so much stuff attached to that whole process that there's opportunity everywhere um all you have to do is want to work and want to do stuff um the companies care it's you know Over the last 30 years, I've seen more care put into the towing industry and trying to make it safer, trying to make it more respectable. You know, airlines is the only other thing I know that's close to it. I know that, you know, trucking and train have some efforts in, but just the level of support that you have and doing things right over here from the Coast Guard, from, you know, everybody, it's just great. And, you know, the amount of, the other thing that really is makes it easy to expand your career is getting involved in the extracurricular activities. So the Maritime Navigation Safety Association, I've been president of for, i want to say 11 years, been involved with it since 2009. It's a group of 12 individuals that meet monthly that just kind of help the Coast Guard and the Corps engineer make determinations on whether a dock should be built, how should a bridge be put in. Any navigation concern from Baton Rouge to the mouth of the river, there's always six deep draft interest in there. Always six shallow draft. The boards always even, but I've got an equal voice with you know representatives from all four of the ship pilots association. They don't look down on us because we're towing vessels. We're all equals in that in that arena. I just spent um, two days at the uh, National Towing Safety Advisory Committee for the Coast Guard, which is that's rules and regulations that get written, a lot of them come out of that committee. It's a committee that's run, Coast Guard owns it um, per se, Congress mandates it. You get an appointment to the committee by the uh, Secretary of Homeland Security to offer official opinions into the Coast Guard. Hey, we think things should be done this way. AWO meetings, um, Marine Compliance Alliance. They have working groups where you go in, take your river experience, take your shoreside experience, go in there and offer opinions and help trying to craft things and make things better, make things safer. You get to participate in how the industry develops. It's not a bunch of stuff that's just run by people somewhere else. It's, it's our industry. They're our companies. They're our safety management systems. And we get to craft them as we want doesn't matter what position you're in your your input matters and all i could stress to anybody is get involved most of these meetings are posted out there if you work for an awo member company it doesn't cost anything to uh, to attend a meeting and tsp uh, meetings um the uh t and sac meetings are all open to the general public all you have to do is come to them um sign up for the public, register for notifications, check the websites. There's a lot going on and a lot of opportunity for everybody.
0: Anything else to share before we wrap this up?
1: I don't think so. It's just, you know, it's been a great career. Uh, a lot of opportunity. I've had, you know, the ability to to see a lot of people come up, you know, through the ranks and, and move into good positions, uh, it's a great place to make a living. I remember when I first started running boats, my brother and his wife, who both have four year degrees from a university, were both mad at me because I was making more money than both of them. Um, you know, it's when you work on the boat, it's you got to adjust the lifestyle working on the boat, but it's an opportunity too. It's, you know, when I was off the boat and I was home with my kid, I was home with my kid all day, every day, drop them off at school, pick them up in school, go on field trips. Um, A lot of people tend to focus on just being away from home, but it's not just that. You get to be home when other people don't get to be home. So there's that portion of it. Um, Safety is the other big thing, you know, I would say. It's, you know, safety numbers are getting better across the industry. Um, We work hard at it. It's not just me. It's everybody in the industry. Um, And if there's one piece of wisdom I could give anybody on the safety side of the house it's slow down, uh, most of the stuff I see, almost all of the stuff I see that people are having problems with because they're getting in a rush. And it's not just always trying to work fast. Sometimes they're trying to work fast so that they can go back to doing nothing. Um, National Safety Council uh, meeting a couple of years ago, and that's, they, you know, brought that up at that. It's like if everybody just took 30 seconds and it not just on telling vessels, but it's working on the car, you know, at the house, if you're going to put a car in a jack stands before you crawl under it, Take 30 seconds and walk around, make sure everything's like it's supposed to be before you cut your grass. Take 30 seconds, look at the lawnmower, make sure everything's like it's supposed to be, make sure everything's picked up. It's just taking that taking that time. And if I could get everybody in the interest of being, you know, a safety professional just to slow down, that'd be the number one thing I'd ask for. Efficiency isn't speed. In the fire service, um, they you know, they say, you know, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And that's that's the trick.
0: Well, Matt, I think that's as good a place to right. stop as any. I do appreciate your time this evening. No problem. I've probably a thousand things I left out, but <laughs> there's just a lot in there too. <laughs> Maybe we'll do it again someday. No, again. sounds good. Sounds good. Appreciate it. This has been a production of At Studios LLC.